Sometimes great conversations just happen spontaneously, organically, without any work. But usually not. Usually they take some work, often a lot of work. And recently I had a great conversation that had taken a monumental amount of work. Even just to line up the logistics took a monumental amount of work. It was a conversation with James Lindsay, the mathematician and author and cultural critic who's become a firebrand with an overarching planet-encompassing mental philosophy about what's going on in the culture wars, that they're driven by a a neo-Marxist, almost apocalyptic cultural takeover that he has very intricate theories about how it operates. And some think that James has gone off the deep end during the pandemic with dark visions of a, a new global order. But I wanted to talk to him for exactly that reason. Because he had been so astute, and he's clearly so intelligent, that I wanted to understand where he'd gone off the rails if he had. Now, all of this is something of a diversion because this episode is not a James Lindsay episode. I was using a an audio recording platform called Zencaster, and theoretically it's supposed to upload the guest's audio and deliver it into the cloud in real time. But when we went to retrieve James's audio, there was about a minute of audio And uh, the only minute was the first minute of us chatting. So if you'd like to hear just a taste of the hour and 45 minutes of spectacular conversation between two, I would like to say, moderately intelligent people with very different ideas about what's going on in the world, sparring and sniffing each other's butts and trying to figure out where the other one fits into the world and whether you're dealing with an enemy or a, a friend, where the boundaries of allyship and, and, and adversary fall. It was a, a fantastic and unreproducible conversation that has been lost to the sands of time. But here is a little taste, just a, a tiny sneak peek of what we were talking about before we got into the meaty stuff. Uh, ordinarily, I would be in a studio, but uh, I kind of forgot that we were talking and we weren't really talking, and then we were talking. So that's good. Yeah, <laughs> that happens. I got my pumpkin seeds. Well, that should help you out a little bit. Put your zinc up or whatever it's for. Do you consume any seeds? I sometimes consume seeds. Uh, Occasionally will consume pumpkin seeds. I'm not a big fan of pumpkin seeds, actually. I don't really like them. I don't think... I can't actually imagine what the difference is between a pumpkin seed and, like, uh, a sunflower seed. Well, you see, sunflower seeds come from sunflowers. Right. And pumpkin seeds are in pumpkins. They don't taste the same. Sunflower no. kernels have a, a different flavor, I think, than pumpkin seeds. How would you describe that difference? I don't know. I think that the, uh, I actually think the sunflower seed has a, has a more pleasant flavor. It's a nuttier flavor. The pumpkin seed has kind of a more kind of organic almost, I don't want to say yeah. it tastes like compost, but it's closer to tasting <laughs> like compost. <laughs> so there you have it, ladies and gents. 
the uh, philosophical musings of James Lindsay and me. Oh, to say that it breaks my heart that you will never hear the full conversation is uh, an understatement. And yet, one rolls with the punches. I am being very zen about the failure of Zencaster. Ho, ho, how apt. And I'm being zen about the general failure of conversations because I still hold out hope. I still hold out hope for the promise of what conversations, honest conversations, frank conversations, conversations free from bullshit can do for us. Nay, what they must do for us, because is there any other way out of the pickles that we find ourselves in from the climate crisis to Ukraine to floods in Australia? Well, that sort of is the same thing as climate crisis in my book, but let's park that story for another day. Is there any other way out of all of our problems than to converse with one another to treat each other fairly, to take each other's arguments with uh, as much generosity as we can muster, to take our own arguments with a grain of salt, to be constantly self-questioning. That is the stuff upon which civilization is made, and so I blunder forth and I persevere in spite of the lost James Lindsay episode that you will never get to enjoy. We march forward with many more conversations that are insightful, frank, beautiful, honest, raw, and sometimes, yes, you guessed it, just a little uncomfortable. Today on the show, our first president or ex-president. I've had a prime minister on the show, former prime minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, have not had uh, a president or any other uh, head of state of, uh, of another country. In fact, I just realised this is the first head of state on the show because uh, Australian prime ministers are heads of government but not heads of state because by some peculiar uh, happenstance, Australia is not a republic yet and so our head of state is still Queen Elizabeth uh, II. Uh, this, uh, this gentleman uh, today it was a head of state. Uh, Thomas Hendrik Ilves uh, was for 10 years the president of Estonia. Let me, uh, um, don't, don't be offended if I just run you through some Eastern European geography and uh, history here for a moment. I'm not implying that you don't know everything about Estonia, okay, and everything about Eastern European borders with Russia, okay, but uh, just in case, on the off chance that there's someone out there who maybe uh, wants a little brushing up before we start talking about Putin and Ukraine and Estonian borders and things. Uh, Estonia is one of only three countries, three NATO countries that borders Russia. Okay. So if you think in your mind's eye down below the Baltic States, like from, you know, basically all the way from Northern Europe down, uh, Russia doesn't share a border with any, any NATO state because it's got a border with obviously Ukraine, which is now completely smashed apart. And then above Ukraine, there's Belarus, which is, uh, sitting in between Russia and Poland. Then you've got Lithuania, which is the first of the three Baltic states, which is wedged in uh, between Belarus and Poland and the Baltic Sea. And only then above that, in this little patch of land uh, in the very, very far northeast of Europe, abutting Russia, do you have the two Baltic states that actually have a border 
with Russia, Estonia and Latvia. Latvia's underneath, Estonia's on the top, and Estonia sits there across uh, a bridge of water from Finland. Finland's above it, and uh, then to to the east of it, you've got this border with Russia. So Estonia and Latvia and Finland are the only NATO countries with a border with Russia. And as a result, they have not only the history and experience, but also the depth of understanding of what Russia is up to and what it means to have to deal with the bear right on your doorstep, not just nearby, as in Poland's case. Poland is buffered, again, by the Baltic states and Belarus and Ukraine. I mean, depending on how this all ends up, if you ended up with Russian troops completely occupying Ukraine in perpetuity, then, yeah, you would have a, uh, effectively a Russian border with Poland. But at the moment, they've got this massive land mass of Ukraine between them and Russia. Estonia doesn't. And Thomas is an interesting guy because he was actually born in Sweden, uh, his parents were Estonian refugees. Estonia was basically part of the Soviet Union. It was invaded by the Soviet Union. It was part of this whole sphere of this massive Soviet empire at its peak. And his parents fled uh, Estonia. The Soviet Union had invaded during World War II. Soviet Union was obviously invading all over the place in World War II. Everybody was. Uh, and his parents went to Sweden a logical, friendly, sort of similar-minded place to be, Scandinavian, Nordic. Uh, and he was born in Stockholm, and he, uh, he moved to the, to the U.S., and he actually grew up in America. He, uh, he grew up in New Jersey, uh, went to high school there, graduated as valedictorian in the early 70s, and... He then went to Columbia University in New York, got his bachelor's degree in psychology, got a master's in psych uh, from the University of Pennsylvania. And so he's this very sort of cosmopolitan, you know, pro-Western, like, you know, American cultured guy. He still speaks Estonian with an American accent, he says. Uh, and he went back to Estonia and became, he was a, briefly a journalist. He was working for Radio Free Europe and kind of uh, producing, you know, news items during the Cold War to try to assist Estonian freedom fighters. You'll hear a bit about that. He talks about this a little bit. And uh, became, by his accounts, a rather unlikely politician and became the foreign minister of Estonia for a couple of years and then quit and became a, an opposition politician and became president of the country. In 2006, he served for 10 damn years, which overlapped with the Obama administration. He left office just before Donald Trump was elected. And he was in office for essentially the, the rise of the Russian threat, the rise of the Russian aggression towards Georgia, the Crimean War, Ukraine in 2014. He was there in this little country, this this very kind of highly developed, highly digitized, very internet friendly, very free economy, very liberal democratic, uh, you know, incredibly wealthy in, by Eastern European standards, little country that was that has been really successful since the end of communism at becoming one of the most tech savvy countries in the world 
and he was instrumental in all of that. And I wish I'd been able to talk to him about that, but you know, there's only so many things you can talk about when you've got a massive war to discuss. And so I hope you enjoy this. Look, uh, Thomas is a, a very thoughtful old guy. And so you have to get over the pace of the way that he speaks. Uh, this is not like bubbly uh, kind of uh, razzmatazz interview that some, you know, kid fresh out of political science class is going to give you. But this is an interview that is that is soaked with the gravitas of experience and credibility so i hope you stick with it and get a deeper understanding of what's going on in the world at the moment through the eyes of someone who has literally been at the coalface uh the one and only ex-president of estonia thomas hendrik Irvis. Can you give me an idea of, uh, and the listeners, an idea of what you were interested in doing when you were younger? Did you have aspirations to be a president, to be a politician when you were zero in adolescence? Zero. zero. None. None. Ever. I did not have a desire to become president the day that I did, in fact. So, What did you like doing uh, when you were a kid? Like, Did you have heroes and uh, people you aspired to be? No. No. I've never had any... I've had very few people I've aspired to be. Uh, so, no. Um, before we go any further, I'll just say that my name, my first name is pronounced uh, as if it were in German, Thomas, not Thomas. Yes. Thomas. I, I bet you have to say that every day to Anglophone speakers. I do. <laughs> and sometimes I don't even bother. <laughs> hey, Thomas. How you doing, Thomas? Yes. Yeah, welcome to the show, Tomas. I am 68. I have had this for 63 years. What was your name before Thomas? No, I just didn't talk to people who spoke <laughs> English. <laughs> right, got it, got it. Everyone in Estonia knows how to uh, how to pronounce it. What did you think, if I'd asked you when you were 15, what, what, what your life was going to be? What did you think you would do? Uh, probably an academic studying some aspect of biology. Hmm. Why biology? I was, I was very good at it, and it really interested me. And I spent time doing it, and then I got picked as a smart student to go do it at a college level at uh, Columbia University uh, on Saturdays. And um, I thought it was really cool. And I was uh, 15, 16, and reading college texts in molecular biology, and I thought, this was really neat stuff, which I still do. It's just that I, I mean, my, <laughs> I had other interests. Mm. Basically, what it comes down to is that uh, Isaiah Berlin talks about two kinds of people, the hedgehog and the fox. Yeah. And the, the fox knows many, many, many little things or a little bit about many things. And the hedgehog knows one big thing. And I am the ultimate fox there is nothing i know well but i have uh, but probably in terms of broad range of uh, knowing a little bit about things i do have too much of that though i hope it doesn't degenerate into knowing merely trivia did you ever think about journalism and the media a lot of journalists are foxes no i didn't no no i mean it was 
it was a rather um, peripatetic trip to becoming what I did become where, uh, I mean, I basically, from biology, I went on to physiological psychology uh, because that seemed more interesting. And then I realized in the doctoral program I was in that actually I, it was all, I'd, I'd just gotten good grades. I had top grades all the time, but it didn't really interest me. And so then I did my little Jack Kerouac hitching across <laughs> the United States and ended up fighting forest fires in Washington State in the Pacific Northwest. And, um, I don't know, I mean, somewhere along the line, I started writing about stuff that interested me that had to do with Estonia, mainly what was going on with the country since it was being slowly destroyed. And, um, and then I was, uh, then I, someone contacted me and said, oh, you're writing about this stuff and we're looking to hire someone. And I guess there weren't many people who were good at writing about Estonia and English at the time. <laughs> and so I was hired by Radio Free Europe to be an analyst. And then um, and then after that, for without really wanting to, they asked me to run the Estonian service, which was the broadcast end of things. For Radio Free so Europe. I became Radio Free Europe. And I, so I, be, I became a journalist. And I was the chief editor and then and then and then the study became independent and because i've been helping the various people in the independence movement uh um they i was asked to become the first uh, post-independence ambassador in washington which i did and it was you know going from a fairly fairly comfortable middle-class existence to hoping that uh, the foreign ministry would send money over <laughs> to pay <laughs> us. Uh, but those were the early days. I mean, Estonia now is a GDP per capita higher than Spain's, but at the time uh, it was $2,800 US dollars, the annual per capita, yeah. GDP per capita. Yeah. Um, so not much of a tax base there either to support things like an embassy, but it was politically necessary. And then um, 19, so I didn't plan on that either. And then, uh, then in 1996, there was some government problem and the president asked me to, or basically commanded me to quit there and come to, to Estonia and become the foreign minister, which I then did basically for the next six years, five and a half years. And um, none of that was planned either. And then um, it wasn't really going to do it. Then I eventually, my friends convinced me to run for the European Parliament, and I won overwhelmingly. And uh, so I was there, and I was chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, vice chairman, sorry, I was not chairman. At the Euro European Parliament, and then the centrist parties, the center-right, center-left, and the liberals came to me in 2006 and asked me to run for president. And I said, I don't want to run for president at all. And they said, don't worry, you won't win. Um, but <laughs> but we want you to run to, to put up a, an effective opposition to the incumbent. 
I said, yeah, well, that'll do. And then uh, so on the day of the election, I was sitting there. Uh, I mean, we have a, a parliamentary system and we have um, we have an electoral college. And then as they as the votes were coming in, um, I don't know, is this a family show or <laughs> yeah. no, no, you can you can swear. Well, I mean, I the votes the the as soon as the tipping point came, I said, "Oh shit! Now what?" <laughs> and that's how I became president. Excellent so, summary. I mean, other stuff I've I've had some agency in, and uh, certainly digitization of my country has been one that I have been pushing for almost thirty years. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about that, but let me just uh, talk about your period as as foreign minister. Um, because maybe you have insights from that about the situation with Russia today. You're a foreign minister about five years after the end of the Cold War, and you're in a country which is right next to Russia, this new version of Russia, a post-Soviet Russia. What, what did you think that Russia would become, and how did you handle Estonia's relationship with it? What did you think the future relationship would be? Well, one of the key things, and there have been a number of articles which I've been in in the last week or two, uh, one in, uh, I guess, Politico, sort of titled, We Told You So, but was that Russia never treated its immediate uh, neighborhood the way it uh, psychophantically approached Western Europe. Uh, and the old George Kennan line that, that for Russia... You can only be, if you're a neighbor of Russia, you can only be a vassal or an enemy. That's always applied uh, and continued to apply during the Cold War. And this it was really no different. Uh, so Russian behavior toward us was extremely boorish and obnoxious and threatening. Even back then, while uh, people were having their um, Boris Yeltsin uh, feasts, it was not good, and it was uh, it was an arrogant, overbearing Russia that we had to deal with, um, and uh, not not only Estonia, basically uh, all countries that had been occupied by the Soviet Union had that same issue, and then of course there were those who chose the vassal path, and then there were those who were deemed as enemies. How did you navigate that as foreign minister? You were foreign minister for a little less than two years before you left and uh, became an opposition politician. But was there a uh, was there a? Well, I had only one goal. I mean, I had really it, I didn't really give a damn about them. I, my I came in since I had uh, unlike the rest of the foreign policy establishment had been convinced that Estonia had to join the European Union, and. Um, because everyone just wanted to join NATO. And I had concluded from my time studying things and talking to people that there was no way Estonia would get into, the, into NATO without being in the European Union because of the Russophilic opposition of uh, Germany, France, and, and the UK at the time, plus some other countries. And I realized that there, if... Were we to become members of the European Union, they could no longer exercise their veto in NATO because that would mean vetoing a fellow EU member, which not only is not done, but secondly, would bring political disaster 
And so I focused on that and uh, secondarily on getting into NATO when Russia really was not, hmm. you know, I mean, we don't really care about Russia except when it's obnoxious. It's right. not, it's not, we don't know. It's kind of like, so what, you know, let them do their thing. It's when they become obnoxious that uh, we have to be concerned with it. And the, the EU and NATO, uh, the joining of EU and of the EU and NATO happened uh, simultaneously in 2004, or at least in the same year, is that right? And then well, you joined... Well, a month of each other, yes. Yeah, and then you took on the euro as a currency uh, seven years after that in 2011, uh, the, the first yes. former Soviet Union, former Soviet state uh, to take on... Please, let's, wait, 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 stop, stop. Let's, let's, let's eliminate the term former Soviet Union. We were merely occupied, but in, I would say that 31 years after, and this is a bet noir of mine, but 31 years after we reestablished independence, I don't want to ever hear the term former Soviet Republic. Uh, in 1976, I, was, uh, I had graduated already Columbia University, and I read the newspaper, I read the New York Times every day. There are lots of articles about Germany, uh, but 31 years after World War II, no one ever, ever said the former Nazi Reich of Germany, when writing about the Wirtschaftswunder or the economic wonder, no one ever talked about France as formerly Nazi-occupied France. <laughs> um, we, the, the, this is a zombie state, and we, I don't like zombies. Uh, so the former Soviet Union is a term that I will not countenance. Is is Putin resurrecting uh, the zombie? Uh, he well, being one, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> uh, yes, I would say that it, not in the concrete sense of um, exactly the Soviet Union, but the uh, I mean, in many ways you could make the case that what he wants to resurrect is the Russian Empire its 1913 borders, and certainly with all of the trappings of empire. What were your dealings with him as president? Well, mostly I overlap with, uh, with uh, Dmitry Medvedev, or Dima the Dim, as I call him, <laughs> not with Putin. Uh, I mean, we recall that there was this kind of bait and switch. Yeah. Know. Just explain that and to that people who aren't across it. Well, I mean, it, because there was a limitation... Um, it's a two-term limit for uh, the president of Russia at the time. And once your two terms were up, you had to leave. And so Putin basically made his prime minister, Dmitry Medvedev, president for one term. And, uh, and in the meantime, continued to be president. I mean, in terms of, a, uh, in terms of the person who called the shots. But then you had a kind of fake president there named Dmitry Medvedev, who... Uh, it was quite a lightweight, I would say, um, and didn't make decisions himself. So he was just kind of a puppet. But that the, his term overlapped with my term in terms of direct dealings. I mean, I met him, yes, but never have a long, long sort of negotiating discussion with him. Mm. The <laughs> I'm interested in in what you thought that he and Medvedev were doing at the time and what their ambitions were for Russia. If if you look if you look up your profile on on the Encyclopedia Britannica, one of the sentences in your entry 
is that uh, your critics who had expressed concerns about your foreign policy experience as president were silenced by your management of Estonia's difficult relations with neighbouring Russia. What does that mean? I have no idea. I didn't write it. <laughs> no one asked me. Why would there be critics? My entire background was in foreign policy by that time. Um, so... Well, I mean, I don't know. Uh, he managed not to get invaded. That's pretty good when you're a neighbor of Russia. Mm. I mean, given that during my presidency, they invaded both Georgia and they invaded uh, invaded Ukraine. What did you do when they invaded Georgia? Let's take that first. Well, that's, that was one of the more interesting episodes in that I... Um, well, first of all, the day before, I was called by um, Misha Shakashvili, someone who I had been advising for a while, and he said he's going in, and I, uh, and I said, don't do that. He said, we have to respond. I said, don't do that. Uh, I mean, I realize it's hard, but don't do that. Anyway, so the next day, the war started. I was called by the Polish president, the late Lech uh, Kaczynski, and he was boiling mad and said, let's do something. We have to, let's make a protest. And I said, great. So we, we worked out a statement strongly condemning all this. And other East European countries signed it. And it had no effect, none whatsoever. No one even noticed. So the next two days later, he calls me back and he said, this is ridiculous. What are we going to do? And I sort of flippantly said, just because um, I didn't know what to say, because, I mean, on the one hand, I wasn't surprised by the lack of attention to what these uh, Eastern wogs were saying uh, on the part of the Western countries. But on the other hand, uh, well, we need, should do something. Said, well, we could always go there. And he said, I'll pick you up tomorrow morning. Go where, Georgia? Well, to go to Georgia. Wow. This was a famous incident. We so, uh, so he rounded up the rest of the crew, that is to say, the well, we got the prime minister of uh, Latvia, the president of Lithuania, and then we flew uh, to Zaporozhye, which is in uh, uh, southern Ukraine, picked up President Yushchenko and flew Ultimately, well, we didn't we didn't fly to Tbilisi because the Russians wouldn't allow us to enter uh, Georgian airspace, or they did not give us permission. So we flew to Azerbaijan, Ganja, Azerbaijan, and then we drove in a caravan to the border. And there we had a new car. Uh, I mean, we had a, another caravan meeting us. And since they were afraid of getting bombed by the Russians, we drove down from the mountains, mountain pass. Uh, Fortunately, in the moonlight, without lights, to Tbilisi, where there was uh, where we got somewhere at eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, and there was a massive rally, and we go, went and spoke there. So you can kind of Google and find all those pics. What impact did you want to have? Well, to stop the war, some people do argue that our presence probably uh, at least gave Russians pause. On since they were 40 kilometers out of Tbilisi and could have made it there in another day. They didn't want to end up fighting with the uh, the Baltic cartel. Well, I don't think it does well to kill five heads of state. Probably not. Probably not a good look, even for Putin. So 
What happened after that when you got home and was there a lesson that you took away from the Russian campaign in Georgia? Well, the main lesson was the perfidy of the uh, Western Europeans in the European Union. And at the same time, Nicolas Sarkozy was there and he pompously announced his peace plan, which meant that we would end the cooperation agreement with Russia between the EU and uh, Russia, which was a big foreign aid program for Russia, uh, until the Russian troops left. And then six weeks later, with the meeting of the prime ministers uh, of the European Union, he himself argued that the cooperation agreement must be restored. And the East Europeans said, well, he hasn't gotten the troops out. It's your program. It's your treaty and he forced it through and came out himself and saying, thank God, common sense prevailed. One of the more ridiculous moments of my career as president, but uh, but he is a, he has been convicted of corruption, so mm. I am surprised. So, th- wait, the French president insisted that Russia be, Russia's deals be re-honored just six weeks after the end of hostilities, which weren't even really over when Russia, well, after Russia had invaded the, Georgia. It was the Russian uh, cooperation agreement uh, that was contingent upon removal of Russian troops. I mean, it's 14 years later, they're still there. Mm. They never left, but his, his deal was contingent. The agreement was contingent upon the departure of Russian troops, which they have not done. But that was his great coup, but it didn't last for long. So... Were you able anyway, to talk was, to, to President Sarkozy about that? At that time, I was so disgusted, I didn't want to ever see him again. Do you think Putin took a lesson from that? Yeah. I think he saw that, no, those Westerners, they're so stupid, they won't do anything. Which was, in fact, true, since shortly thereafter, with the Obama administration, we, the U.S. initiated its reset program once again showing the naivete of the west and of course he he got a further uh, was further bolstered by the lack of any serious response to this massive violation of the of the whole post war world war 2 order when he invaded and incorporated crimea i mean he just got a little tut tut tutting there and things got a little more serious after they shot down a civilian airliner and Malaysian airliner MH17. Mm. Even then, it, there was uh, it was one of these interesting um, UK moments where you know, the uh, the cabinet meets at Ten Downing Street, and then when the cabinet leaves, then uh, across the street from Ten Downing Street, all the paparazzi are lined up. And one of the paparazzos uh, had, uh, with a big telephone lens, managed to capture a picture of a document that was under the arm of a minister, which said, roundly condemn everything the Russians have done in the loudest and strongest of terms. Point two, do absolutely nothing except no policies that would in any way affect Russian investment in the UK. I mean, so now this was no longer perfidious France, it was perfidious Albion. You know, the, uh, the, the joke about a British, an English 
revolution or an English uh, demonstration chant, which goes, what do we want? Incremental change. When do we want it? As soon as is convenient for everybody. <laughs> you mentioned the Obama reset. You were, uh, you were president when Obama was elected. What, what did you make of his election? What did you make of the guy initially? Well, I mean, I was quite impressed, uh, and certainly I thought it was a milestone in U.S. history in uh, that the United States, I thought this was this one of the great moments of American history in that uh, after centuries of racism that a black man could be elected president. As we've seen subsequently, he was a two-term president, but what followed him was a resurgence of white nationalism that I never would have imagined. And his administration's attitude towards world affairs in uh, striking the Iran deal and pulling off the what he claimed was this reset with Russia, uh, the criticisms that people make there, of his... Uh, there was also the red line about in uh, Syria. use of chemical weapons. Yes, and the yeah, pivot to it, Asia. It, it, Did you, was, you know, the criticism of the Obama administration is that it was a bit Pollyanna or naive about real politic. Did you share that view? Well, over time, yes. Uh, I mean, I had much higher hopes. I mean, he had a, he had a fairly good cabinet. Ash Carter was one of the smartest... Uh, defense ministers or secretaries of defense that there has been. Uh, I didn't think very highly of his um, foreign secretaries or secretaries of, of State Department. But, uh, I mean, I thought Car uh, Kerry was exceptionally weak, and he, is, he continues to be that, I think, extremely naive and sort of Pollyannish. And the main thing with Obama is that he really couldn't care less about foreign affairs. And his motto on foreign affairs was, again, to quote him, don't do stupid shit, which actually was translated into don't do anything. What did you make of his pivot to Russia? And did you think that that was an overture that was worth making? Or did you think that was ignorance or naivete? And did you talk to him about it? No, he actually had a pivot to Asia, not to Russia. Sorry, the re and, sorry the uh, the the reset in Russia and, and the pivot right. to Asia, but the reset. To well, Russia. I think that was part and parcel of the pivot to Asia. Is that well, I mean, he said, "Well, Russia is a junior varsity team," um, which may be in fact be true, but nonetheless, <clears throat> I mean, it meant that we don't really have to pay attention to Russia because they're so insignificant and they're. And the real threat to the United States is China, which is probably also true. Yeah, although by many but accounts that pissed off Putin. Yes, well, that did. Um, but, I mean, the problem they, uh, that we have, I mean, someone wisely said that um, Russia is a hurricane, China is climate change. And, um, mm. I mean, in the long term, we will all have to deal, I mean, why am I telling an Australian? But we will have to deal <laughs> with, uh, with China uh, strategically uh, and for forever. Mm. Uh, Russia is uh, a country that basically makes itself important by being a pain in the ass. There's Instead another... of focusing on developing its own country, it goes around and invades its neighbors. I mean, this is, I mean, the, the, I mean, I don't even want to go into the psychology of all of this, but it certainly, I think, affects more than simply... Uh, uh, the current leader. 
There's an argument that one hears in the West, Thomas, that the you know, this is an understandable reaction on Russia's part to uh, the West's bungling of the end of the Cold War, uh, NATO expansion, uh, the demeaning of uh, Putin through lines like Obama's that you just cited, uh, that uh, this is hypocrisy on the West's part, because if you look at the, the United States... Oh, I don't buy any of that. First of all, NATO did not expand. It was the desire of the East European countries that understood the threats that led to their wanting to join. Uh, first in 1999, uh, Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic, and later on, uh, we joined. Uh, this was not that NATO was, oh, we're gonna, we want to go out there. It was the opposite. It was trying to convince countries that we should be part of, I mean, that as, as sharing those same values of uh, liberal democracy that we wa would like to be in NATO, uh, that, I, that's a kind of, a, that's a nonsense trope that I basically consider anyone who takes that, picks that up from Putin as a Putin shill because it has no, uh, value to it whatsoever. And there are a bunch of American academics have been pushing this, though I'd advise them all to read uh, Andrei Kozarev's tweet or uh, Andrei Kozarev's interview just yesterday. Andrei Kozarev was the foreign minister of Russia under Boris Yeltsin, the first and last civilized Russian foreign minister since 1917. But I mean, a genuine sort of uh, person of the intellectual uh, foreign affairs professor type. Uh, and he he says this is all nonsense. This is just this uh, nonsense that's um, this was never the case. That, uh, and so he wrote that piece. And then I sort of didn't. Uh, uh, I mean, he wrote the interview appeared yesterday. And then I wrote. <laughs> And this especially applies to John Mearsheimer and Emma Ashford, who's two leading proponents mm. or, or exponents of this idea, to which I was su surprisingly, Andre Kozner retweeted, exactly. That's who we had in mind. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Mearsheimer is... You can look that up, just my Twitter page. You've also tweeted about tens of millions of people being on the brink of encountering the worst two weeks of their lives because of one man's and his nation's psychopathology. Yeah, well, that was two hours before the anniversary of the attack. I mean, in addition to Mearsheimer, you know, Mearsheimer is the most celebrated academic who holds this opinion, but there are many journalists and commentators on the left and right. You have Tucker Carlson on the right, uh, on the left, you have John Pilger, the Australian uh, academic. You have Glenn Greenwald. Uh, the, None uh, of them are very serious or can be taken seriously. It, stri mean, you have, it, it strikes me that, the, the, I mean, they might have some grand geopolitical point on the hypocrisy question if you take it, uh, you know, if you imagine what it was like being a small country in the Western Hemisphere during the Cold War, perhaps, if you imagine that you were Honduras or Nicaragua or Cuba. But they're not making any sense if you actually take into account the validity of the lives of the people who live in Central Europe and Eastern Europe. I mean, if you believe that Ukrainians and Estonians have agency, then their arguments make no sense. Right. But they don't. I mean, this is part of the uh, Russell-centric uh, worldview that assumes that all of these, which is how, which is very common and also in Germany, I would say, and that the um, 
you know, that really the deals ought to be made between Germany and Russia and the Zwischenländer or the countries in between really just are a pain in the ass that we have to get rid of. And uh, that was certainly pursued by Adolf Hitler in um, 1939 to 1945. Uh, and basically in economic terms was pursued by Germany after uh, the fall of the wall, bizarrely enough, making 10 to 15 times more money of Poland and the Czechs than they did ever with Russia. And then um, uh, has continued until until February 28th, 27th, I guess, three days. I mean, basically what we did, what happened, and I think this is something people really ought to think about more deeply, but that it is early in the game, but something that we call the post-Cold War era, which perhaps began somewhere between uh, August 1989 and met uh, closer and uh, Christmas 1991 between the first uh, democratic elections in Poland and the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union formally in 1991, December, and in between saw the fall of the wall and the end of communist domination of Eastern Europe and end of the Soviet Union, all that, to February 24th of this year, which incidentally is our independence day in Estonia, unfortunately, but nonetheless, that was the end of the Cold War, post-Cold War period. And all of the assumptions of the post-Cold War era were thrown out. More importantly, what was thrown out in some ways was the post-war era, since what the post-war era was defined by beginning with the UN Charter and followed up by the, at least here on this part of the world, the uh, Helsinki Agreement uh, and later the Paris Charter. I mean, the fundamental assumption that you cannot change borders through use of force or even threat of force. Um, aggression is a crime. I mean, that was uh, set in stone at Nuremberg. And that, that was something that was, in fact, followed even by the Soviet Union, more or less, at least in the European side of things. Of course, obviously, they did invade Afghanistan. And that is over. It is now, I mean, what, the, what February 24th did was tell the world that, in fact, yes, you can and we will, I mean, one can and one will uh, change borders through invasion, uh, that there are no sanctions really for war crimes. Uh, and we see, you know, the use of thermobaric weapons and uh, the indiscriminate bombing of civilian areas. I mean, we're back to pre-May 1945. And so the world has changed and how we're going to deal with that is going to be a problem for all of us. And your big neighbor there is kind of looking at this and going, hmm, what does all of this mean? And mm -hmm. I would say it is certainly in the interest of Australia that the, that the transatlantic hmm, alliance show to show the Russians, but thereby also to China, that uh, changing borders through military aggression is a no-go. Yes, you're right to, to point to the fact that a lot of the concern in Australia is about the robustness of, uh, of the military alliances and stability as they 
pertain to China and concern about whether or not Beijing will be taking signals from what's happening in Ukraine and could potentially make a move of its own. Uh, everyone's looking at Taiwan closely. But w- why do you, just before we move on, why do you make February 24th uh, the date of the end of the post-Cold War era? Because that's the day at 5.30 in the morning, uh, Ukraine time, that Russia invaded. February 24th, oh, right, okay, yes, of course. I thought you were talking about the cancellation of Nord Stream or, uh, or Germany doing something. Is there a, how, what do you make of the... That came on the 20s, that came later, or some. I mean, Germany, I mean, the first really big response was the 180 degree turn. I mean, actually, a senior German officer told me last week the 540 degree turn in German foreign policy after February 24, in which uh, Olaf Scholz basically trashed 50 years of Ostpolitik their whole attitude of handel or change through trade. Oh, we'll just trade a lot with the Russians and they will become just like us, democratic and human rights respecting. Yes, it's a funny argument, isn't it? We get that, that a lot. all ended. Yeah, yeah. It's convenient that, the, that that argument both uh, makes you... Uh, rich and also is a way of of cleansing your conscience of do, for doing business with uh, with tyrants. It's uh, it, it serves multiple purposes. I hear people say that the Western European response shows that they do have a spine. Do you not see it that way? We'll see. Too early to tell. To quote Joe and Lime, right? <laughs> you know the line, Joe and Lime. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of the French Revolution? It's yes. too early to tell. I mean, yeah, that's, that's probably right. apocryphal. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, I, I look, it's uh, two weeks. It's now two weeks and five hours since they invaded. We'll see if this is uh, what, what the results will be. But in any case, it will be very difficult from now on to really make that case. My concern now is that any the, whatever the slightest concessions are, they will uh, immediately try to, the West will say, oh, okay, listen, we'll, well, sorry about that. We sanctioned you, but now we won't. Hmm. It was February 22nd, by the way, that Nord Stream was, uh, was frozen. Uh, so it, that's why I got confused by the date. It was a couple right. of days before okay. the invasion that Germany uh, canceled, canceled that. So it's sort of back to front. But uh, so suppose we bungle this, Thomas, and the, uh, you know, that at least Putin gets out of this in, uh, uh, in a manner that he regards as having been worth it, whatever that means. Are the Baltic states mm-hmm. at risk? What are the Baltic states the Baltic at risk? States at risk? Um, well, you know, one of the benefits of NATO membership, and in fact, why Ukraine wanted to be mem- uh, to join NATO, is that um, you know, we have Article Five, and so an attack on the Baltic states would be uh, basically put Omsk and Tomsk and Irkutsk also kind of in a bad position. Like they wouldn't exist. I guess the fear the fear is that Putin doesn't believe that the U.S. will go all out on Russia if Estonia uh, is invaded. Yeah, that's, but now that the problem is, well, first I would just basically say we're the West Berlin of uh, of this era. Uh, well, the problem is that if the United States or any member of NATO vetoes Article Five, that would be the end of the alliance. Because as soon as Article 5 fails, what, just once, hmm. uh, 
then no one will trust it anymore. So, I mean, if you, so what is keeping the um, alliance together is this fear that, well, if we don't keep it together, then we're all alone, each one of us. Together. Right. But if you had an isolationist president in the White House, if you had a Donald Trump uh, in the White House, then he may well say, well, I'd rather lose the alliance than start World War Three. Estonia can go to this is true. Well, this is why uh, this is, I mean, you know, these are kind of the things you have to deal with in politics, right? But right now we don't have that. We do not have that situation. And as long as we don't have that situation, I can't, I'm not going to speculate about it. Mm. What's the best thing for the West to do now? I mean, what's the sort of best, what's the best card to play? Well, I would certainly arm Ukraine to the teeth with drones. And I'm looking here right now, just, it just happens in my Twitter feed, uh, seeing a video of apparently Bayraktar drones absolutely destroying a, a Russian tank column, just blowing it up. So um, that's what they need, more drones, more Western assistance. And, um, and of course, if we have what, uh, what, I mean, what is, what is getting bad, of course, is that, um, the Russian, uh, Ministry of Defense yesterday, uh, uh, admitted they had used a thermobaric weapon, which is probably one of the cruelest, most disgusting weapons, short of nuclear weapons. Just explain uh, what thermobaric weapons do. Mm, they, they, well, they, they suck all of the oxygen out of uh, your lungs for in a radius of uh, five hundred meters. It just if you use it, then everyone dies in the area. Yeah, it's so. totally indiscriminate. It's a, it's a sort of an, a, a, a bomb of terrorism. And of course, the use of cluster weapons has been used. The cluster weapons are also banned, have been used massively in residence, against residential areas. I mean, we're talking serious war crimes, and there are a number of initiatives already to initiate war crime, a war crimes tribunal against Russia. I think that's uh, that must be done, absolutely. And I've already seen that the Germans have initiated investigations, the Spanish, uh, there is another initiative that... Um, uh, at the International Court of Justice, uh, to to uh, was signed on by thirty nine countries, including my own. Uh, this will come. I mean, I think we may need a special Nuremberg. Why not hold it in Nuremberg? I mean, I think that's where <laughs> we are heading. Hmm. Do, do we know where the thermobaric weapon? Uh, went off. It basically, I mean, if people don't haven't heard about these things, that they they basically suck. As Thomas said, they basically suck all of the oxygen out of the air and then ignite it, so that your lungs get decompressed, you suffocate, and then and then the whole thing explodes. Uh, horrendous for civilians, completely indiscriminate. Do, do we know where it was, Thomas? We don't know. The Russian. I mean, this was. The Russian MOD said they had used it, and this was reported by the uh, UK Ministry of Defense. You can just Google UK Ministry of Defense and mm. thermal barrack. What's the 
what's the likeliest? I've asked what what card we should play. What do you think the likeliest outcome of all of this is? I mean, just in terms of whether or not it turns into uh, an Afghanistan-style quagmire, whether Putin gets frustrated and you know does a Grozny on uh, Kiev, whether he pulls off some kind of unexpected victory. Can you gaze into your crystal ball? Well, his first of all, I mean, one thing that where he's completely off, and which shows his his the problems if you're run if you're a dictator is that he said, oh well, we'll just replace the president, and then you know the whole thing will be solved, which was what the initial plan was. Not understanding that you know you can you, can, <laughs> I mean, Zelensky is yes a unifying figure, but without Zelensky and and any any puppet, I mean. Ukrainians are not going to stop fighting. You know, after all of this, you think the Ukrainians, I mean, why did, would anyone think that the Ukrainians would not keep fighting to the death? And of course, after all of the atrocities, which we see every day coming in, they're not going to give in and they will fight to the death. And uh, that is just the way it's going to be. And so I don't see a way out of it as long as there are Russians on on Ukrainian territory, Russian army units. I mean, the thing to keep in mind is that ethnic Russians are are the primary targets, at least in areas like Kharkiv, but they just happen to be Ukrainian citizens, right? So it's kind of like, you know, Japanese fought in the U.S. Army and Germans fought in the U.S. Army during World War II. I mean, it's the same thing. Mm. And they were furious uh, fighters, ferocious fighters, rather. Uh, so that's that's one path that he's really screwed up on, and uh, that's just going to be a problem for them. Uh, he can level Ukraine, creating a massive, massive uh, refugee crisis in Europe. Uh, since uh, unlike Syria and other uh, refugee crises, or at least the main one, 2015 in uh, in Europe. Uh, these are not Syrians coming across the sea. These are Ukrainians who uh, have, I mean, people from a country that borders four European Union countries, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, and Romania. So land route. And if you have a Ukrainian passport, you have uh, visa-free travel. You don't have to apply for asylum. And on top of that, the European Union wisely actually uh, announced a policy saying that uh, anyone with a Ukrainian passport escaping the war can stay and work and live in the European Union for three years. And hmm. we'll see what happens. Hmm. Just Which was a very smart move. So there are two million at this point. Uh, I mean, an increasing by the, by the hundreds of thousands every year. Uh, Every day, um, I think, you know, we had we had 4,000 two days ago, 5,000 uh, yesterday in Estonia. And so as we anticipate it's going to keep going up. How are they getting to Estonia? Bus. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, you're the end of the line, uh, really. <laughs> you know, you, you leave uh, Ukraine. Well, you, you need to really want to go, go to Estonia. Well, I mean, well, Estonia's a, I mean, it's by far the most successful post-communist country so it has a it has a really it has a stellar reputation we're not calling it post-soviet remember thomas i said post-communist <laughs> That's okay. i'm just teasing I don't mind yeah no i just mean yeah i mean you you need to you know you cross through a lot of other eu countries before you get to estonia 
Well, I mean, you have on the way, if you come to Poland, then there's Lithuania and then there's Latvia and then there is um, Estonia. And in fact, you can keep on going to Finland if you really want. But, uh, <laughs> you but need a boat, don't you? Estonia is kind of, what? You need a boat, don't you? Or is there a bridge? No, there's a boat. It's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's 80 kilometers. Well, you just get on a boat. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not. It's not expensive to take a ferry from Estonia to Finland. Incidentally, what's the border with Russia like? What what is there? If I if I'm in Estonia and I drive to the Russian border, what do I see? You see a, a barbed wire fence where there is, but the bulk of it is water. So yeah, but there yeah, are land there are land uh, crossings. Yeah, uh, well, uh, we have built. We have built uh, an extension. So basically, we have a um, a barbed wire fence, and uh, then a perimeter of I don't know five hundred meters. Uh, I mean, sort of a sort of I don't know, or less, maybe two hundred meters. And then, of course, cameras everywhere, so we see whenever someone is coming over the border. And there's a road you can drive between Estonia and Russia. Well, there's several border crossings. Hmm. Is it armed? Is, it, is there a military presence at all? Not right now. We have we have uh, non a non-military sort of police-based border guard. I mean, that's hmm. kind of the civilized thing to do. Yeah. If we fast forward 20 years into the future, do you think that border looks the same as it does now? Um, minimally, minimally. I mean, one. Of, I mean, the 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 border fence is there in its current state, more out of a concern for smuggling, mm, illegal immigration. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, a, a Russian babushka living in Estonia gets a larger pension than the average salary in Russia, and that was before the massive devaluation. So. You're a veritable croesis. If you're a Russian babushka and you go to Russia right now, hmm. you, you know, get your yeah. pensions in euros. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Oh, I would much rather be in Estonia than uh, than many other places. I, I can assure you. But you're not worried that that border will someday be militarized. Well, I mean, that's up to Russia. That really is up to Russia. Mm, I mean, if it starts behaving, mm, continues to behave it is, the way it is, there will be uh, a lot more pressure to uh, to militarize the border. Right now, we don't do that. But I suspect that would, uh, I mean, it's basically the same kind of border as all of the other uh, countries of NATO that border Russia. I mean, right, but a I mean, fort of offense, offense, basically. I mean, you know, one suggestion. I mean, I, you know, I mentioned earlier the question is whether or not Putin believes that uh, the U.S. has the stomach for World War Three in order to defend Estonia from Russian aggression, and part of the response to that currently is the suggestion from some hawks that we need to emphasize to Russia that NATO is still coherent by arming NATO's eastern flank. Would it be a good idea 
to send troops from a number of different NATO countries to be stationed there permanently, well, temporarily at least, in Estonia, facing Russia? Well, I mean, currently under the, the... Well, under the Russia-NATO or NATO-Russia founding act, uh, NATO voluntarily said they would not put any substantial troops or or material in the countries that have joined uh, NATO since 1997. And the Ukraine war rather. doesn't change that commitment for you? Uh, well, I think it's become kind of non-operative. Um, the American sector alone in Germany had 400,000 U.S. troops. Now, I mean, if actually, if you just, I mean, given that, okay, I don't know how many people lived in the, how big the American sector was. There were three, or there were four, actually. I mean, there was uh, UK, France, uh, US, and the Soviet Union. Now, there were 400,000 troops, to say just the West, just in West Germany, which had a population of what, 63,000, 63 million. That proportion in Estonia would mean 8,000 US troops, just to be proportional. And that's underestimating because we probably would have more Brits and French too. I don't think that's really the way way anyone will be willing to go. But certainly the uh, NATO-Russia founding act is dead in the water. And in terms of permanent stationing of NATO troops, I think that will be inevitable. And I think in bringing considerably more in terms of weaponry and armaments here is also in the cards or should be. Yeah, it seems sort of quaint to abide by an old NATO agreement with Russia when Russia is stampeding across a sovereign nation. Yes. Well, I mean, it kind of loses all of its meaning. Thomas, I I won't keep you any longer. You've been generous with your time and your uh, your ideas. Do do you want to uh, do you want to cast your mind uh, into the future? What let's talk about Estonia specifically, just to end with. What where do you want Estonia to be when my kids are grown up? How old are your kids? (laughs) (laughs) They're four. Okay. Well, uh, 20 years from now, I would say that um, that there is an alliance of liberal democracies that, because of the digitization of the world, is no longer dependent upon geography the way it traditionally has been, one of the one of the uh, cha- the massive changes that we have not really appreciated sufficiently is that the era of kinetic war ended in uh, 2007 with the world's first visible cyber attacks against my country. So, I mean, the, any history of cyber war will begin with Estonia because before that it was all mm, sub rosa. And, um, but one of the results of the, of kinetic war, you know, leaving, leaving aside currently Ukraine, but say war between, between, uh, developed countries will be cyber. You see it in Australia, you see it in the US and you see it in across, across Europe is that distance no longer matters. Newton's second law, force equals mass times acceleration, which is the basis of all kinetic threats, loses all meaning if you don't have mass, you don't have acceleration, because after all, acceleration is distance divided by time squared. In other words, Tallinn, Tokyo, Torino, Toronto, they're all equidistant. 
One impact of that is that our defense alliances no longer need to be geographically determined. I mean, and NATO, after all, does stand for North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And why is it the North Atlantic Treaty Organization? Well, precisely because tank logistics, bomber range, fighter or bomber refueling, fighter range, troop logistics, all of those things. That, doesn't, that becomes meaningless in, a, in, the, in the world we have entered. So there's no reason why there should not be a strong defensive alliance that incorporates the countries of Europe that are liberal democracies, the Western Hemisphere, those that are serious uh, liberal democracies, not to mention Taiwan and Japan and South Korea and New Zealand and Australia and whoever else qualifies as a genuine liberal democracy. I would ask actually, as for a last question on my part, the only question on my part is why is New Zealand not sanctioning and Australia is? Uh, there is a, a sense in New Zealand, uh, New Zealand thinks of itself as being, well, look, the critic of New Zealand says it's because New Zealand has no guts and no principles. Uh, it's a, a squishy little country that wants to appease everybody and please everybody. Um, the, the ally of New Zealand says that uh, New Zealand has a, a progressive, outward-looking vision of the world that is expansive and non-doctrinaire, uh, non-dogmatic, a non-bossy attitude towards things and is uh, an inclusive and, uh, you know, semi-neutral, uh, uh, comfortable place. Those would be the two rival ways of describing that, that position. And I think Australia sees itself more as the, I mean, it may sound silly to a European or an American, but within the context of the South Pacific and the Asia Pacific as a major power that has, that has to sort of be the, the deputy sheriff of the Western world in this area and has to be stronger and more clear headed and have uh, a harder, more principled stand about things. I think that would be the... Well, that's certainly the impression I have had always of Australia. I mean, given its uh, participation in in the past 120 years in all kinds of... Well, the past 100 years, mm. uh, not all of it very good. I mean, very pleasing to Australians, obviously, in terms of uh, the use of Australian troops. But uh, World mm. War One, World War II, uh, Afghanistan, yeah. Korea... Even Vietnam, Iraq. I mean... It, yeah. Yeah. And Iraq. I mean, we. I mean, I would say basically, people see Australians as a responsible, a responsible country that realizes that you need to do your share, and that's uh, that's really kind of the image. But uh, you know, I was just surprised when I just yesterday looked at a, a map of the countries that were participating in um, in sanctions, and there was Australia, but. Uh, mm. No New Zealand. I mean, I think, I think Thomas, that may also just be an accident of which political party happens to be in power in which country. There have been conservative New Zealand governments uh, in the past, uh, in the 80s and I think 90s, which probably would have done it. At the moment, they happen to have a left-wing progressive government led by a very charismatic young woman who is sort of renowned for being a conciliator. And so, you know, maybe things, mm -hmm. things could have been different. Well, maybe they should look at videos of what's happening to civilians. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's great to talk to you. Take care of yourself. Take care of your uh, your country, and hopefully we'll cross paths in the future. 
Take care. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.